If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Mopac Audio. A note to listeners. The following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. A little more than an hour east of Manhattan lies the quiet gated community of Oak Beach on Long Island's South Shore. In the pre-dawn stillness of May 1st, 2010, the silence is shattered when 24-year-old Shannon Gilbert, an escort from Manhattan, bolts out of a house disoriented and unsure of her exact location Believing that she's running for her life, Shannon screams into her cell phone that there are men trying to kill her. Down the street, at the only home with lights on, local retiree Gus Coletti happens to be up early prepping for a long drive upstate. Suddenly, he's startled by someone frantically knocking on his front door. Coletti finds a terrified Shannon begging for help. He doesn't know Shannon or how she got to his doorstep, but what's undeniable is the terror she's feeling and it puts the same in him. He saw that she had a phone in one of her hands, that she's been on 911 the entire time, and she's shrieking. And the only word that he can, can make out, according to what he told me, is help. And he finally says to her, I'm going to call the police. And it's unclear whether he's saying to her, I'm going to call the police, you're in trouble, and I'm gonna help you, or I'm gonna call the police, you're frightening me, and I need help. But in any case, as soon as she hears the word police, she screams even more, and she runs away. That's journalist Robert Kolker, author of the New York Times bestselling book Lost Girls, which details the disappearance of Shannon and is the basis for a Netflix feature-length movie. Regardless of whatever was said that night, ultimately Shannon Gilbert vanished into thin air. And just as quickly as it had all spun up, the frantic and confusing incident seemed to be over. But Shannon's terrifying night and disappearance actually became the catalyst to a much larger and more gruesome story. One that would include multiple missing persons found dead, families torn apart, and allegations of a conspiracy. That singular event was like pulling on the thread of a sweater, and 10 years later, it's still unraveling. In the next six episodes of season one, you'll hear rare interviews with victims' friends and families, private investigators, journalists, and former law enforcement a cross-section of different experiences with the case. We'll present new leads, ask some obvious and not so obvious questions, and provide incisive analysis 
into one of the country's most baffling and active serial murder mysteries. My name is Chris Moss. I'm a television producer whose team spent much of the last three years working to understand Shannon's disappearance and the much larger case of the Long Island serial killer, who the victims were and even who's behind it all. I venture to say no one in the country knows this story better than us. We crisscrossed the Northeast meeting with and interviewing the cops, the politicians, reporters, investigators, the victims' families and friends. Through their own words, you'll come to understand every angle of the case. Childhoods as only a mother could tell, close-knit siblings growing up together, as well as families driven apart by dysfunction, and others involved with the case who are still haunted by what they've seen and heard. Along the way, we've gotten some answers, and through this podcast, we're hoping to shake a lot more free. But what is certain, this is a complicated and layered story filled with characters that are heroic and tragic, and some that are despicable and vile. But before all that, it's important to set the stage, where it all happens. Suffolk County, Long Island. As a bit of geographic reference, you can leave the overcrowded streets of Manhattan and, whether by bridge or by tunnel, you can be in Long Island's Nassau County within 45 minutes. Keep traveling east and you'll eventually cross into Suffolk County. One island, two counties, but with distinctly different identities. Nassau is like an extension of New York City. It's densely populated and teeming with cars and noise, whereas Suffolk stretches nearly 100 miles farther east out into the ocean. And along the way, there are towns, farms, and space to blend in, or even disappear. To spend any time in Suffolk amongst its million and a half residents, you'd be shocked to learn that it often ranks in the top five richest counties in the country due to its wealthy enclaves, the most famous being the Hamptons. However, if you were to cut this sliver of opulence from Suffolk County, its ranking in wealth would drop them well into the middle of the pack nationwide. But given Suffolk's corruption, there's a solid chance their police department would remain as the highest paid in the country. Oak Beach is a peculiar place. It's right near some of the most valuable real estate in the world. It's really right down the road from Fire Island and from Southampton and from East Hampton and all the places where the titans of industry go to spend their summers. And it's the same sand and it's the same water and yet it's not the same people. Again, that was journalist Robert Kolker who also spent years delving into the mystery of Shannon Gilbert, Oak Beach, and ultimately so many other missing young women. One person who had exclusive insight as to how Shannon's night began was her then-boyfriend, Alex Diaz. The day that she went out to work, it was uh, April 30th. That was the last time I was with her. We were hanging out that day. You know, we was having, we were like a normal, like a couple, we went to see the movie. Going back more than two years before that night, Alex Diaz and Shannon had met professionally. She was an escort for the Manhattan-based service World Class Party Girls, and he was her driver. Within a short time, they began dating and eventually moved in together. Shannon and I first met in, uh, I would have to say, 2007. And that's when I used to drive for this escort company. Uh, I used to drive, you know, different girls, you know, everywhere, all over the tri-state. And one day I drove with Shannon. I picked her up and it was in Jersey. I think we believe in Jersey City. You know, we got along, we clicked, and this was somewhere around December now, 2007, around there. We ended up actually, you know, chilling after work. We was like basically friends with benefits type stuff like that. And then little by little, you know, we was like girlfriend and boyfriend, you know. From there, they lived together and worked together for nearly two years. 
until world-class party girls went under when its owner was arrested for prostitution and drug charges. This made Shannon and Alex decide to go straight. As Alex looked for work, Shannon landed a waitressing job, but it brought in about a quarter of what she'd been making. With bills piling up and money tight, Shannon went back to escort work, only this time with a new driver. My name is Michael Pack, and I'm from Queens, New York. You know, I just drove her and, uh, you know, just make sure, like, when she was at a call, then I would, make, you know, I would text her, to, you know, like, tell her the time, like, if the time is up or if she's okay or wh- which exit she's coming out of so I can pick her up. So just to clarify, an escort agency lands the clients. The driver brings the escort and stays in contact as the escort attends to the client, or the John. Then the escort collects payment and hands a cutover to the driver and agency. But soon after Shannon and Pack began working together, the internet, specifically Craigslist and Backpage, along with smartphones, gave Shannon an idea. Yeah, she was one of the pioneers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know what a smartphone was at that time. Michael Pack and Alex Diaz both sat down with us to talk about that time. It's the iPhone 1. First time it came out, yeah. She paid, I think, like $900 for that phone. Uh, she learned her own. She was smart. Yeah, I never heard of iPhone. Yeah. At the time, in 2010, sites like Craigslist and Backpage had a booming business of escort services operating under posting sections like casual encounters and adult services. Shannon realized she could skip the hassles of an agency and make more money by posting her own ads for sex work. Then, while out with her driver and iPhone, she could respond to clients' calls in real time. Some of them negotiate, like, you know, the price and how long she would stay and like what she would do, like party. And they, they said party call means like uh, cocaine, cocaine party. Here Pack recalls the second to the last night he worked with Shannon. I think like the day before she had a job in the Upper East Side. Yeah, that was a cocaine party. So she went up and then after like 45 minutes or an hour, she, she called or texted me and said that uh, he wanted her to stay an extra hour because they were partying, so. And I said, okay, that's all right, fine. After that evening, Alex Diaz remembers their last day being like any other. The day that she went out to work, it was uh, April 30th. That's the last time I was with her. We were hanging out that day. We sneaked in Taco Bell um, into the movies. We went to, we went to see the movie. Um, it was with Freddy Krueger. It was a new movie that came out. A Nightmare on Elm Street? The night, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street. But it was like the new one, not the old one. And yes, as a grim indication of what was to come, Alex and Shannon had gone to see a reboot of the classic horror movie franchise. I went with her to see the movie in Hudson Mall in Jersey City. And then after that, we went home and then she said, and then she said, yeah, you know, I already spoke to Mike, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna see if I work tonight, and blah, blah. She was like, I really, uh, I, need, I, mean, I need to make this real, the, the fast money real quick for the apartment, and I was like, uh, whatever, you know. So after a normal day and an evening movie date with Alex, it was late on April 30th, 2010, when Shannon posted some ads for sex work and met up with her driver, Michael Pack. I was in my car in uh, 32nd Street, Broadway. We were there for a couple of hours because we had no calls. Uh, it was getting late around midnight, and then finally somebody called, and they, they were far. So they offered, like, $500. So, so we said, okay, since, you know, It's uh, less traffic, even though we never went out that far. This was the call that brought them out to Oak Beach. After nearly an hour of driving, it was about 1 a.m. when Michael and Shannon arrived at the Oak Beach gate. 
Beyond it, about 70 homes are haphazardly scattered along a few miles of roads. Yeah, it was a long drive. It was very dark, dark road. Like, there were no lights there, you know. I didn't even know where I was going. And then I finally found it. There was, a, like, a little gate, uh, one of those, like, lifting gates. And, um, and Brewer told us how to get in, but it didn't work. So he came out in his Jeep and, and gave me the code to the gate. And then I followed his car in. Michael Pack is referring to the client, or John, Joe Brewer. He's in his 40s with unruly shaggy beach hair and carries the extra weight of overindulgence. Joe lives off family money and there were neighborhood rumors that he threw wild parties that included escorts. On this night, most accounts say it was just Joe Brewer and Shannon, but there are allegations that others were there. We'd love to have Joe Brewer tell you all of this, but he didn't want to talk to us. Shannon followed Brewer uh, up into his house and then I waited in my car. So I just, uh, I put my seatbelt, I was relaxing there, and then about 30 minutes later, Shannon called me and uh, she said, can you go to the store and pick up like playing cards, uh, massage oil, and lube? Sometimes, escorts will request these sorts of errands as a way to pad the time and thus their payday. Right, so I said, I asked her, you know, it's kind of late, how am I gonna find a store around here? She said, oh, okay, then I'll just find my own way home. And she got upset and then she hung up. Pack said this had happened before. There had been a client where Shannon had sent Pack on and she stayed late and ended up finding another ride home. But this time, Pack was confused. I didn't know what was going on, so I called her, she didn't pick up. I called Brewer's cell phone, uh, didn't pick up, but then left a number for his other phone, so. Uh, and then he called back and then he said, oh, it's okay, you don't have to go, right? I was like relieved, so here, so now I, I go back to like resting. Not, not too long after she was in there, about an, less than an hour. And I just, uh, I could barely, it was very dark, but I could barely uh, hear and see them like getting into his Jeep and zooming off. Michael remembers Joe Brewer and Shannon getting into Joe's car and going off for about 15 minutes to run some unspecified errand that we still don't know exactly what the purpose is. And I guess they went to pick up some more party drugs or something. Uh, but um, I, I don't remember them carrying any bags or anything, so it must have been like something small. We do know, due to their location, that they were at least a 30-minute trip to any store. I don't think there's much open in that area at that time. Um, you know, they could have picked up drugs from a neighbor or, yeah, they didn't even talk to me. They went back in the house. Pack's phone records tell us the next time he hears from Shannon was around 4 a.m. when she calls to tell him Brewer wants to pay more to extend the date by an hour. So I said, okay. And then around 5 a.m., right before dawn, he came out. And, you know, that was shocking because usually I don't talk to clients or see them. And he said she won't get out, you know, get her out. I was like, what? And then he said she won't leave. So I was surprised. So I went in and I went up. It was a very messy uh, living room, a very messy house. and. Uh, uh, but uh, it was a lot of stuff, and then I saw her on the other side of the living room, about like 20 feet away. I said, Shannon, let's go, you know. Pack said Shannon was physically calm, but acting very paranoid. Something freaked her out. She looked freaked out. She looked like uh, she was barely looking at me, and uh, she was like, I think, focusing on the phone. I heard someone say, you know, what's your location? And then I, I could tell I was the operator, and then I realized, oh, that's 911. But she didn't say anything, and then yeah, I went to, back to my car, uh, and then it was getting dawn, like, uh, it was getting a little brighter. It was still dark, but I was sitting in my car, I was thinking, okay, so, let me, you know, I'm gonna drive home. 
So you have, according to Pack, an escort who's dialed 911 but won't leave. Brewer the John who wants her out and the driver stuck in the middle of it. It's a highly unusual situation, even for the escort world. But I didn't start my car yet, and then I saw Brewer in the backyard in the uh, terrace, second floor. Like he, I think he went out to smoke. Uh, I could barely see, but you know, I just said, uh, uh, she didn't leave. Uh, she wouldn't get out. And then he was like, what? And he's not surprised. I guess he was waiting for me. I, he thought I would take her out, but so he ran downstairs. Later, Brewer would claim that once downstairs, he tried picking up Shannon to physically remove her from the house. But this sent Shannon from paranoid to panicked, and she started screaming and ran out. So she ran out of the house, and then, um, so this is still very dark. I could barely hear that she fell uh, like a loud thud. So I thought uh, she was hurt, but then she just got up and ran right away. I put my high beams on because it was so dark. I was looking for her, I called her, texted her, and I yelled out for her. I said, Shannon, Shannon, where are you? Shannon, let's go. And then um, and it led all the way to the, the gate in the front. So I follow her down the road and then to the near the entrance and then uh, and then I see her hiding behind a boat parked next to Gus Coletti's house. Just a reminder, Gus Coletti is the man mentioned at the beginning of the episode. He happened to be up early that morning getting ready to drive upstate. Gus lived four houses down from Brewer and just inside the Oak Beach Gate. Gus Coletti came out of that house and he said, what's going on? I said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, uh, we're just going home from a party. And then Shannon ran to my right. I didn't think uh, I could lose her because there was only one exit out, out onto the road. During their exchange, Coletti told Michael Pack that he'd already called 911. So I said, no, don't worry about it. You don't have to call the police to Gus. And then I was like, I'm just going to take her home. And then I drove down the road. And I thought she would be in the bushes along that road. To understand what Pack is saying, it might help to picture Oak Beach at night. Out on a barrier island with no streetlights, its roads are pitch black. Not to mention everything, the roads, the yards, the houses. They're surrounded by this mix of tall marsh grass and dense bramble. Now back when Pack arrived at Oak Beach, once he entered the gate, the road forks. He took a right, went past Coletti's, a quarter mile down to Brewer's house. Then heading back searching for Shannon, Pack loses sight of her while talking to Gus Coletti. From there, Pat continues his search another hundred yards to the gate, and not seeing her, he leaves. This sends him, actually, in the diametrically opposite direction of where Shannon went. We know this because once at the gate, Shannon took the other fork, and a few hundred yards down that road, she knocked on the door of Barbara Brennan. Living alone, Brennan didn't want to let in an unknown, panic-stricken woman, yelling about men trying to kill her. However, she did make the third 911 call that night. But by the time she was off the phone, Shannon had already left, vanishing into the darkness. Meanwhile, there's Pack, who at this moment claims he's just exited the neighborhood's gate. I went, yeah, I went out the gate, and I thought she would be in the bushes along that road. Just to clarify that, Pack's claim is that he spent some time looking for Shannon along the roughly quarter-mile-long access road that leads back to Ocean Parkway, the Barrier Island's only real road, and the only one which takes you back to the city. And that's where Michael Pack went. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. 
Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. To quickly recap, Shannon has disappeared, Pack is heading back to the city, and the Suffolk County police are on their way to Oak Beach. Police arrive at 5.40. So police are, are there within 20 minutes, actually less, 18 minutes of Gus Coletti's call, and actually within 10 minutes of Mrs. Brennan's call. She's nowhere to be found. Michael Pack is nowhere to be found. No SUV is found. That's Dominic Verone, who spent almost 40 years with the Suffolk County Police Department. In 2011, he retired as chief of detectives, which would have meant he oversaw the detectives looking into Shannon's disappearance. The fact is, uh, after Gus Coletti calls and Mrs. Brennan calls, the police are quickly there. The problem is, is no exhaustive search is done of the area because there's no reason to believe she ran off. If Michael Pack would have stayed, uh, you know, and, and told us, you know, that she was still there, that she ran off, then I think the officers would, would have done a much more exhaustive uh, initial search. So as dawn breaks, Joe Brewer, the rest of Oak Beach, and the responding officer all end up thinking Shannon left with her driver. Meanwhile, Michael Pack heads home thinking Shannon ditched him to find her own ride back. But as that Saturday, May 1st, progresses, there is one person wondering where she is. Shannon's boyfriend, Alex Diaz. I kept calling Shannon, her phone was off the whole time. It was off, off, off. Then it will ring and then it'll be off again. I'm like, what the hell? Did she go to jail? The day, Saturday, May 1st, ends with no word from Shannon. So Alex really begins to worry. By the next day, he's finally able to track down Michael Pack's number in one of Shannon's notebooks. Here, Diaz and Pack pick up the story. Yeah, it was a Sunday. I believe it was May 2nd, 2010. So then I, I called the number and then I figured, oh, I, at the beginning, I was talking to Mike, thinking, I thought it was like he did something to her. I was like, yo, what's Shannon, yo? So then I was like, yo, so who you think who you, th you think that guy that she was with did something? And I said, yeah, okay. his name was Brewer. I'll call, I'll call him right now. Yeah, I'll call him right now. I'll three-way you. said, yeah, three-way me with him. Yeah, so then after that, he three-way me with Brewer. Later that day, Diaz and Pac were able to get Joe Brewer on the phone. I kept asking him, like, you sure you ain't do nothing to her, man? I said, let me know what really happened, man. You ain't do nothing to her. You didn't hit her. You ain't, like, killed her. I feel like he did something. That's the whole time. So I'm thinking, I said, look, man, I'm a, I want to meet up with you. And he goes, no, anytime, anytime. I said, all right. So I'm leaving right now. It's an hour and a half from my house to, to get to uh, Oak Beach. It's a long drive. I didn't care. I left. It was like 10 o'clock. I got there like around 1130 or 12 in Oak Beach. Alex was surprised by just how ominous Oak Beach could be. When I went there, it was, I was a little scared, a little spooky. But when I passed the bridge, that big bridge that, you know, that takes you to Oak yeah, Beach, yeah, that big bridge, 
once I got in out outside the bridge, it was like no man's land, pitch black, like black, and it was highway. If you, if you don't got no lights, you're crashing, or you you just can't drive. So. I had to put my high beams on there. And then when I was looking around, it looks, I, I used to be thinking in my mind, wow, this is a place they could kill somebody and throw them in any corner inside those bushes and they'd probably never be found. It was this type of thinking that led Alex Diaz to bring a gun with him, especially since he didn't know who Joe Brewer was. I didn't tell him I was bringing something, you know. I was thinking about putting something to his head and make him talk. You know, that's what it takes and I would've did it. So it's around midnight when Alex makes it to Oak Beach. He's scared and Brewer's scared, but they meet at the gate to figure out what's going on. I started asking him, tell me the truth, man. I said, yo, I'm already here. I told you I was gonna come here. Tell me the truth, man. What happened? Tell me you, you did something to her. Then he goes, no, man, I didn't, I didn't do nothing to her. He kept denying it. I didn't touch her. I didn't. Joe Brewer, the whole time Joe Brewer is, it seems like he probably knew something or something. I feel like he's hiding something. He's not giving me all the information I needed. Something that he said that made me like, oh, think about something was when he said, oh, I think she could have been a man. And I'm like, how could she say, what is wrong with you? I realized, I think he said that to make, you know, to make it sound like that's why you didn't have sex with her. Yeah, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, but I I thought that maybe he said that, like he probably hurt her or killed her because he was angry, oh, he's a man. So like, who cares, I got rid of it. And I looked at him like, yeah, bro, look, man, you're wrong, trust me. I'm 100% you're wrong there. I kept telling him, yo, I came all the way an hour and a half from here just to ask you questions. I want to know what's going on because I will keep coming back, I told him. And then he goes, no, I don't know what to tell you, man. So I was like, let me calm down. Let me like, make this ugly, you know? Let me deal with this in you know, a uh, different way. The confrontation wasn't going as planned, but Diaz was still suspicious of Brewer, so he called his bluff. And that's when I told him, all right, let's just go to the police station. Where's the police station? He told me, yeah, you saw, follow me. Once there, Alex will learn how little the police concern themselves with missing escorts. And I was following him to the police station. I was thinking, like, I still think that this guy I always felt like he knows something, or he know or something that somebody did something. And I feel like it was him. Because I feel like out of all the other places she had went, she never had this problem. But the, the one time that she goes to Old Beach, and this happens, so I'm thinking there's somebody in that community right there. As the men walked into the station, Brewer seemed to know how the interaction with the police would go down. Once we got there, he got off the car. We was walking together. He was telling me, I think he was being kind of like, like sarcastic, he was like, I don't think the police are gonna do much. They're not gonna really even care no more. It's not like it was a, she was a regular girl. There's like, you know, a regular high school girl these were missing or a random lady, you know, that basically trying to tell me not, not to, that then the cops are not gonna care too much because she was a working girl. Once inside the police station, Brewer was hesitant to share the nature of his relationship with Shannon. But the whole time I was there, all Brewer said was that, you know, I was with a lady and then he's, he's just worried about her. And he, he ain't explain that much. He ain't, he ain't get into details about what was going down, that, you know, he called for an escort. He didn't say none of that. He, he ain't get into those details. And maybe Brewer didn't need to overshare with the police because they knew all about him. They knew him. They were like, you know, they were joking around and they like, they, they seen him before. So it's, it's something, it's, you know, it was pretty little weird that, you know, police knew him. In the end, it appeared Joe Brewer was right about how Suffolk County police would treat their visit. The Suffolk County police basically, they didn't really care. So they just, they just blew me off. They said they were just kind of like smirking about it and laughing a little bit about it. Like, oh, well, I think she, I'm pretty sure she'll appear. Just start, go home and maybe she might be home already, stuff like that. And I was like, no, man, I think something really happened to her, man. She was out, she was screaming. She had called the police while she was in Oak Beach. Here, Robert Coker shares more about the frustrating experience. They're basically laughed out of the place. 
I mean, Shannon was in her mid-20s. She was of her own free will. You know, she was an escort. Nobody was really taking this seriously. And they told them that they had to file the missing persons case in Jersey City, where Shannon lived. And so Alex leaves, disappointed. As Diaz makes his way back to Jersey City, a lot of questions are left swirling. The main one, of course, where is Shannon? But also, why did she run out of Joe's house that night screaming they're trying to kill her? And had it been just Shannon and Joe, or was there actually a bigger party taking place? Some of these questions might be answered by the audio of Shannon's 23-minute 911 call. It's true these calls are rarely released immediately, but 10 years later, we're still waiting. And it's Shannon's family, I think, that ends up filing the missing persons report in Jersey City and pursuing the case from there. In the following weeks, Alex, Shannon's mother Mary, and Shannon's sisters made several trips to Oak Beach, knocking on doors and trying to get answers. And during it all, the police are doing nothing. Here's retired Chief of Detectives Verone on what led to law enforcement's delay. You have to understand that when um, Gus Coletti and, and, and Mrs. Brennan dialed 911, they automatically, from their location, using their landlines, at the time everyone, you know, everyone had landlines, went, went directly to Suffolk County Police Headquarters. But according to Verone, Shannon's 911 call was handled differently due to the fact that it was made from a cell phone. This is fellow producer Shannon McGarvey and I discussing what exactly happened with Shannon's call. So she went missing in May. Mm -hmm. They found out the call, according to Verone, a a month later, which would be June. Mm -hmm. But then it would still take them another month, according to Coletti, to come out and look for her, which was August. You know, when Shannon called 911, in her mind, she really didn't know where she was. She knew she was in Long Island, but she was unfamiliar with the area. And I'm assuming she had seen some signs for Jones Beach heading out to Long Island. So when the 911 operator asked her for her location, she said Jones Beach and was transferred to a Jones Beach 911 operator. New York State Police, they cover that. That's a state park, right? Yeah. Because it's a state park, when Suffolk County 911 dispatchers say, where are you? And she's like, I'm Jones Beach. That is a state park. So they transfer her over to the state police. It's state jurisdiction, yeah. And it bounces around as they're trying to figure out who it is, where she's at, what's going on. But, you know, Coletti and Brennan's calls, because they called from landlines in Oak Beach, they go directly to... They go directly to Suffolk, but they're not tied together. And Suffolk County is dispatched and on the scene probably within... Pretty quickly. Yeah, 20 minutes of those calls. Whereas Shannon was on her cell phone for an upwards of 20 minutes talking to various dispatchers. But remember, it did take state police about a month to even report Shannon Gilbert's phone call to SCPD which was in June. And then uh, it took them about another month and some change, according to Gus Coletti, to even go out to Oak Beach and start asking questions again. And according to Coletti, it was the same officer who had shown up on the night or morning of May 1st. Yeah. Which is head scratching. 
If Suffolk County Police did finally become aware of Shannon's 911 call a month later, in June, it appears that it still took them at least a month to actually go out to Oak Beach and look into Shannon's disappearance. According to Gus Coletti, it's not until something like August that the cop who responded to the first 911 call comes out to Oak Beach and starts knocking on doors and asking questions about the missing woman. And so that shows you just how highly they're prioritizing this missing person's case and how seriously they were taking it. The question hinted at, did Shannon's lifestyle play a role in law enforcement's lack of concern, almost always lurks in the background for cases like this one. And it won't be the last time it comes up in this series. But what might be a first, law enforcement actually confirming their lack of urgency because Shannon was a sex worker. Police are gonna uh, react in the most empathetic way and the most motivated way that they can to, to help this person. But certainly the fact that, and how lifestyle uh, con contributed to perhaps some of the delay of getting the ball rolling. Meanwhile, fall of 2010 came and went, and for the most part, so did thoughts about Shannon and her disappearance. And at some point, Shannon's case became an open case that was being pursued by the canine operation, the cadaver-sniffing dogs of Suffolk County. Maybe not necessarily because it was a, an active case, but at the very least it was an open case where they could drill and train their dogs. In December, an officer with the canine unit in the Suffolk County Police Department, he took his dog, Blue, out on a run to Oak Beach. Uh, he didn't really find anything in the Oak Beach area, and eventually worked his way down one side of the highway of Ocean Parkway. And he made it three miles down that highway before finding something. At the time, there was at least one person paying attention. I'm Jacqueline Gallucci. I'm a freelance reporter, and I used to write for the Long Island Press. She didn't actually know about Shannon's case because the Suffolk County Police had mentioned little about it to the press. But Jacqueline Gallucci had been writing about the scores of women who'd been vanishing on Long Island. So in December of that year, something came through the wire that caught her attention. I was the weekend reporter on in 2010, and um, a news release came through that remains were found by the beach. And that is not unusual for Long Island because there's a lot of wildlife over there, there's deer, and they always put a line in, we're not sure if these are human or animal remains at this time. So I had that in the back of my head, but never really thought anything of it. And later on her way home from work, she heard a traffic alert that Ocean Parkway was shut down due to police activity. At first, Jacqueline thought it must have been an accident. Then she pieced it together. But I had that in the back of my mind that remains were found. I'm like, what if? Is that 1% chance? I right away, I drove down there and I pulled over and I got in before they closed everything off and I shut my lights off. And it was, it was dark at that time because it was December and I was unseen for about 40 minutes. I, I saw the crime scene unit. All of a sudden, the, the spotlights come on, and they were pulling bags out. It was hard to see, but something was happening. They found something. Coming up in the next episode of Lisk, Long Island serial killer. We were putting together a list of most powerful people on Long Island, and I suggested Shannon Gilbert. Because she went missing, all these other people were found. So she did a great thing in her death that wasn't for nothing. Yeah, well, she got into it because of the fast money. There's a defining feature with Shannon, a titanium piece of her jaw from her surgery from when she was beaten up by Alex Diaz. 
we was uh, arguing and uh, we was fighting and like I was mad. I, I lost my temper that one day and I, I hit her. There's clearly documentation that Dr. Peter Hackett uh, called Shannon Gilbert's mom. On December 11th, 2010, the police are along Ocean Parkway. And they said that they had found female remains, skeletal remains. Jeff and I just started crying. We knew it was her. You've just listened to episode one. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to download the subsequent episodes that build on this haunting case. It begins with a search for a missing escort, but grows into something much more gruesome and unimaginable. This episode was written, produced, and recorded by myself, Chris Moss, Jonathan Beale, and Shannon McGarvey. Editing and musical composition by Blake Maples. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzarden, Jonathan Beale, and me, Chris Moss. Brought to you by Mopac Audio. For more information, including exclusive photos and videos, go to LiskPodcast.com. L-I-S-K Podcast.com. If you suspect human trafficking, contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline by texting HELP to 233-733.